You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Thanks, Dean. Let's hear it for Dean. You know, it takes a lot to come up here and, and read the scriptures and um, stand before people. So thank you for being such a welcoming church to us. I have two people that I want to recognize this morning before we get rolling. Uh, first off is my mom, Carolyn, uh, whose birthday it was yesterday. So I want to say happy birthday to my mom. I didn't get her a card, so I have to do this publicly. Um, but if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. So, I mean, I feel like we have to owe you uh, honor so for that. Um, and I want to recognize my bride. So it was our 15-year anniversary this week, so as of March 1st. Um, so uh, a little under 15 years ago, we were about three months into marriage. Oh, well, I love you. Um, thank you for loving and serving our family so well. Um, you're amazing. So, uh, yeah, we were about three months married 15 years ago. Uh, we had just gotten married, and uh, we got invited to go on a missions trip to Russia. And so we were like, this is awesome. We're so excited. Um, I'm going to be a husband who is leading my wife well. We're going to start our marriage off on mission. Um, and so, of course, we fly over to Moscow. We get in a small plane, fly over to another place. Then we get in a car, and we start driving. Um, and we were going to a fairly remote place. And as we're driving, um, the bus driver says, uh, get down. We're coming to a checkpoint. And it was in that moment I started realizing I might not know how to lead my wife and protect my wife well. Um, and so literally we have to duck down and there are guys with big guns that are standing there checking the cars. Um, and, and so we're like huddled down, like what's happening? And proceeded to drive. I think it was like an eight or nine hour drive that, that we ended up taking. And there was a multiple checkpoints. Um, we were scared out of our minds. And I, I think at that point was probably one of the first times she was questioning who is this guy and why am I in Russia with him, um, and can he protect me really here with all these big guns, and, uh, and so we get to our destination, and it was, the missions trip was to go to a university, so it was a collegiate um, and, uh, and above university to do business training, and so we went with a bunch of business leaders from the states to go train in business all of these university students, invited by the president of the university himself. Um, and so we came as the entertainment. Um, that's why we were there. And so if you didn't know this, we're musicians as well. And so my wife and I, uh, we brought a guitar, and we were kind of the hype people. And so we would, we would step in between the sessions of business training, and we would sing songs. And they wanted us to do familiar songs. And so we were doing, uh, at the time, uh, One Republic. Uh, there was some in sync, I believe. Uh, we were, um, I, 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 what was it? I'm a Believer. Then I saw her face, right? That one, the monkeys. Um, and all songs that they recognized and they would sing it. They didn't speak a whole lot of English, but when they did, they knew the songs. Um, and they genuinely thought that we were best friends with like Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. Um, and so we became mini famous in, in Cresnador. Um, and so, uh, but it, it was um, in that time that at the end of the trip, the president of this university, who's, who's a very prestigious, wealthy man in that community, held a dinner for us. 
And so we go into this place, and there is this smorgasbord of just amazing foods. And what they did was he would then sit somebody in the seat of honor. That seat of honor was for our trip leader. His name was Nolan Rollins. And so they, he sat Nolan down, and then in order, sat people in order of importance. So his first important, like his, it must have been his, like, vice principal or whoever it was in the vice president of the school. Um, and then he sat his people in order, and then Nolan proceeded to sit his people in order. Of course, Lauren and I being at the end of the table. Um, and so we're all at the end of the table, and then they just start bringing out food. And, and part of it, and part of this dinner, was were these toasts. And so they would get up, each person, starting with the, the, the person of honor who was the host, and then our person of honor, and then proceeding down the, the table, you would get up and you would toast. And part of this toast was, um, I know this is the Holy Sacrament, but I'm just going to use this as an example. Um, we, we had these cups, and what the idea was is at the end of this toast where he was celebrating and, and, and thanking people for being there, um, you would then cheers the people across from you. But it almost became a game because one of the, the culture things there was that you had to toast lower than the person across from you as a sign of honor, that I am lower than you. And so it became this game throughout the entirety of dinner to try to be the lowest one to toast. And the table is just filled with all food and centerpieces and all different things. And so you're plotting your course throughout this whole dinner. You're like taking your cup and you're like, all right, if I go here and go low, he's not going to be able to go lower because he's got a piece of bread or something that's in his way, right? And so you're trying to show honor by toasting. Like that was the whole idea, to show honor, to show this uh, reverence, this submission to the people around you. Even though we didn't know them personally, that was the culture that they had created at this dinner feast. Now, rewind over 2,000 years ago. There was another dinner held that was a dinner of honor. You have a man by the name of Jesus. And he's in his 30s, yet towards the end of his life. And he hosts this dinner with the people that are important to him. And they're sitting around this table... And normally when you would come into dinner, different, maybe a little different than him seating you in order of honor or, or toasting lower than the person to show honor, um, there was someone that would normally be there that would wash their feet. And that doesn't sound normal in our culture, but they would be either wearing sandals or going barefoot, walking through not asphalt streets, but streets of dirt. And, and their feet would be very dirty. And often they didn't even have chairs to sit on. They would be sitting on the floor eating dinner. And so they're sitting basically on their feet. And so the, the host often would have uh, hired some kind of a servant to come in and wash the feet of people that were coming in. But instead of being the one to stand up and sit people in honor and do all these things that made himself look better, this man, Jesus, wraps a towel around his waist and proceeds to wash the feet of those at the table, showing them honor. Something that was, at that time, very uncomfortable because he was their rabbi, he was their teacher, he was someone that they held in high regards. And when we look at this book of Ephesians, because we're wrapping it up today, we have been walking through the letter of Ephesians for a year and about three months, 
going verse by verse through this amazing letter that Paul is writing to this young church. And as we wrap this up, Paul is really giving a charge to the body. He is exhorting them. He is encouraging them with with so much. And really where we're going to land today is this idea of loving and serving one another out of reverence for Christ. So can I pray for us as we dive in to the word of God? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming to serve. Thank you for submitting your life to your Father in a way where you laid your life down so that we can have a restored, reconciled relationship with you. People who do not deserve that. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning as we look at your word that we just stand in awe of what you are calling us to and what you have for us today. We lift this up in your name. Amen. So this is maybe a little bit different of a message because this isn't going to be like a clear three points um, because this really is kind of a recap and, and a charge from the entirety of the book of Ephesians. This is, is a call to action, and although maybe this may feel lighter in nature because there's not these three distinct things that you need to walk away with, I want you to know that it's not. I mean, this is a call to action for the church. And so Paul is shepherding the Ephesians. And, and in chapters 1 and 2, here's the thrust of what he's trying to get the Ephesians to understand. He is saying, trust in Jesus. Paul is under house arrest, and the church is growing. The church of Jesus is growing, and he is exhorting the people in chapters 1 and 2 to trust in Jesus, to place their faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And so we see that this man, Paul, who was transformed... By Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus in such a way that it drastically changed his life. And he's writing to a people that have been transformed by Jesus through faith. And so there truly is this um, understanding or idea that without Jesus, people, all people, are spiritually dead. Now, culturally, maybe you're coming in here and you've been to other churches or you've seen maybe Christianese sayings on the wall or you listen to YFM. And so you may have boiled down Christianity to be a good person. But this word, all of it, doesn't talk about being a good person. It talks about being someone who is a dead person. That without Jesus, you are spiritually dead. And I know for us that doesn't make sense because we can do good things, but it's kind of like we're walking around as zombies. We have signs of life, but, but truly there is no life inside of us. And, and so Paul is reminding the Ephesians, this church, that apart from Jesus you are dead, but then he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us, he lays down his life, he raises up, Right? We're about to celebrate Easter. What is Easter? It's talking about the raising up, the belief that Jesus has raised up from the dead. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't be here. And so he raises up from the dead, 
to give us life, to defeat death, hell, and the grave on our behalf. Not so that we could merely be good people, but that we could be people who are alive in Christ. People who are bringing hope to a hopeless world. People who are bringing restoration to a broken world. People who are bringing that same life that we have to a world that is dead. And I don't have to convince anybody in this room that the world around us is dead. Agreed? We just, just, just open up Fox News, CNN, whatever platform you want to. I mean, the world is destroying itself because we are dead and we have no hope apart from Jesus. And so Paul is saying and exhorting and challenging and lifting up this Ephesian church saying, trust in Jesus. He is your only hope. And then he starts talking about in chapters 2 and 3 about being unified. There were two very distinct people groups that we saw here in, in, in the book of Ephesians. You have the Jews who were the chosen people of God from the Israelites, the covenant with Abraham that we were just talking about with the baby dedication, and then the Gentiles, everybody who was not ethnically Jewish and in the line of Israel. And there was this kind of battle that was going on. It was, it was racism. It was this idea that, that the Jews didn't think that the Gentiles should be grafted into the promises of God. And so there was always this idea that they were, the Gentiles were less than. And so in, in chapters 2 and 3, Paul really goes after the church of God and says, there is neither Greek or Jew, rich, poor, young, old, black, white. Like he erases all separation from any type of person. And he says, we must be united. Why? Because in the eyes of the Lord, we are his children. And no status, no ethnicity makes you better than. He says, we as the church are to be united. So trust in Jesus, be united. And then he says, walk in love in chapters four and five. So now he's exhorting this church to walk in love. And he, he, he goes into the depths of what it means to walk in love. And I don't have time to get into all of it. But he says the word therefore 11 times. And anytime you see in scripture the word therefore, you must ask the question, what is the therefore there for? Why do we do that? Because he is saying, walk in love, therefore. You have been saved, therefore. Because God has unified every single person in the entire world, therefore. And then he starts saying these things, not as a to-do list, but as a life that has been transformed, as an overflow of this relationship that we have with God, we now get to, in joy, in love, in peace, live out this good news for the world around us. And as we live out this good news, the world will know who Jesus is. And so he's saying, trust in Jesus, be unified, walk in love. And then he really gets into what it means to be the church. And that's what we're landing on in the end of the series, spirit-led relationships, and here's the charge, to love and serve one another. We're honing in on chapter five, verse 21. And this is what Paul says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this word submit is super robust. It's it's kind of weighty, 
But it has so much meaning because he goes on right after he says this. And maybe your Bible has this. Maybe your Bible doesn't. But, but there are headings in, in the Bible. And there are verses. And then there are chapter breaks. We believe that this right here is the word of God. And it is inerrant. Meaning that it is fully true. 100% true. But I want you to know something. We have added page numbers, verse numbers, chapter numbers, and headings. Okay, so you just need to know that. So when the early church is reading this letter, that's for our own uh, like reference. So I could say to you, go to Ephesians 5.21, and then you know where I'm talking about. But for the early church, they're reading this as a letter. And so as soon as he says, submit to one another, he then breaks down all of these relationships and what it looks like to have this mutual submission between one another. And here's what submit means. It means under God's arrangement. This submission is actually a submission to the Lord. Why do we submit, honor, respect, love, serve one another? Because of what God has done for us. We have to understand this because if we don't understand that this honor, this submission, this arrangement is under the Lord, we do this because of what God has done for us, with reverence for God, then we miss it because then we get to play the game of like, well, he doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. That's the game that we begin to play because we think, well, if they don't deserve it, then I don't have to. But he's not saying do these things because they deserve it or because they've earned it. He's saying because what the Lord has done for you. You were once dead. You were once a sinner. You, get this, were once an enemy of God. But he took what was once an enemy and made him a child, made her a child. That's a big deal. Someone who goes from complete stranger to a child. Our family has experienced this in adoption. So one day, there was this little girl whom we didn't know. And she came to our house and was dropped off. A stranger coming into our home to become our daughter. And it was through the process of adoption that we learned what it meant to be fully adopted. And that's language that Paul uses right in the beginning in chapter one. You know what's amazing about adoption? Is that right after everything was solidified with the state, you know what the state did? They sent us a new birth certificate for Hope, our daughter. And you know who's listed as her birth parents? My wife and I. It says, mother, Lauren, father, William. That's, she is our daughter. And for anyone out there, if you were once a stranger and you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have now become a child, a full child. It's out of reverence for what God has done for you in that, that then you serve those around you, that then you love those around you. And if we don't understand that, then, then it really hinders what serving and loving looks like. And here's what hinders our serving and loving one another. It's a wrong view of God. A wrong view of God will hinder how we love and serve those around us. 
When we have a small view of God, we tend to have a large view of self. Now, I said that, and you're looking at me, and I'm getting a lot of stares. But why is our culture unraveling, our world unraveling before our eyes? Because we have a very, very small view of God and a very large view of self. And in fact, what has happened, which has happened in generations before us, is that we, I, have become the God. If, if in any culture we lift up our self-identity as the thing that is most important, then what that does is that belittles what is most important, which is a holy God who has created all things. And so when we have a small view of God, we tend to have a large view of self. But if we have a sovereign view of God, that means an understanding that he is the one who is all-knowing. He is the one who is all-powerful. He is the one that is everywhere. A sovereign view of God then we begin to have a small view of self. In fact, we begin to think of ourselves less. So submission and honor and serving will rise and fall with your understanding of who God is and what he has done for you. So the problem is, is this small view of God. Now, in the story about Russia and Jesus at the Last Supper, each story had a host, correct? So we had the president uh, of the university that was the host, and, and we honored everything that he told us to do because of the position he was in. In the story of Jesus in the Last Supper, there was a host. Jesus was that host. But often, we tend to treat God more like a host at a restaurant. So, the host at a rest, hostess, host at a restaurant, think about it. Like you walk into a restaurant, what's their job? Their job is to basically get you what you want. And so you step into this restaurant, it's like, I need a table for four. I, well, me, it's a table of six, right? I need a table for six, and then I want to sit by the window, and then they bring you over there, and you're, you're like, oh, I don't like this seat. I want this seat, and then you sit down, and then there's a waiter or a waitress that comes over, and their job is to make sure that you get everything you want. I, I mean, my kids, I need my ketchup. I need my this. I need my that, right? Oh, I need ranch dressing, right? And so you're trying to get everything, and that waiter and waitress is there to serve you, and if you don't keep my drink filled, I'm going to be upset, that's the way we posture ourselves. And if you get the order wrong, oh, then, then the tip's going down. God is not the host or the hostess of a restaurant. He's not a waiter or a waitress. Because in that scenario, who is God? We are. Get me what I want, when I want it. If bad things start happening, I'm going to call over the manager. The problem is, is when we have a small view of God, we begin to treat this life as this all-inclusive resort that we can just get whatever we want, whenever we want it. And if we don't, we're going to throw a hissy fit. And we won't submit we won't submit when we feel superior. We won't submit when we believe that others don't deserve it. We won't submit 
when we begin to justify our sinful actions, I did this because you did this. Confession time. I did that last, this morning, 6 a.m. My five-year-old came in, and she was awake, and she wanted water. I wasn't gentle and loving in that moment. Why? Because she didn't deserve it. Yeah, go ahead, judge me. Go ahead. <laughs> but that's how we live our lives. It's in those little moments that we get these glimpses, but, but we do it everywhere all the time. I do it everywhere all the time. But look at the relationships that Paul expounds on in Ephesians. He's talking to the church family. That's, that's this right here. He's saying in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, church family, be united. Be united. Church family in 4, 1 through 32, live holy and encourage and help one another live holy. And in chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another. Then he goes on and he talks about husbands and wives. And he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Nurture them. Care for them. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Are you seeing a pattern here? He's not saying do these things because those people are good people or they deserve it or because they're giving you the love that you want back. It's always husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave up his life so you love your wife. Wives, submit to your husbands. Honor your husbands as unto the Lord. Not because he deserves it, but as unto the Lord. And then he goes on to parents. Parents, don't, don't let, like, make your kids angry all the time because of how you're belittling them and how you're always putting a heavy hand on them. But love them and shepherd them and lead them in the ways of the Lord because of what Christ has done for you. Children, honor and obey your parents as unto the Lord because of what he has done for you, children. Therefore, you honor and you obey. Work relationships with your boss, with those that are subordinate to you. He says, submit to one another. Christ died for both those that are subordinate and Christ died for those that are in authority. So you are now one. So treat each other with love and respect as children of God. Love and serve one another because of what Jesus has done for us, not for what they do for us. Because if I understand how big God is, and I even as, as I was writing this, I was thinking about how saying that God is big is just not even enough. Like a large view of God, that's still not big enough. Right? We can even go to Starbucks, a venti view of God, like that's not big enough. Like that's why sovereign makes this kind of come into light because he is so other than. He is so magnificent. Like we begin to like say, okay, God, he put the whole world in his hands. And true, like he, he is that big, but he's even bigger than that because he controls every single molecule in the entire universe. And so when we begin to have this huge view of God, this sovereign view of God, that changes how we interact with one another, especially when people hurt us 
or they get us upset, or they do something to us. When we view them in light of how the Father views them, it changes how we forgive, it changes how we love, and it changes how we serve. That's why when he's talking about loving your enemies, he's saying love your enemies as God loves your enemies. He's saying serve them, love them, honor them. There's a, there's a whole paradigm shift. Like there's a whole perception that must change because of how big we view God. He exists to glorify himself. And my enjoyment comes from being at the table with him and those whom he has invited around us. So what hinders our serving and loving one another is a wrong view of God and it's idolatry. We worship ourselves and our stuff. There's an old movie that some of you, I'm sure, have seen called Willy Wonka. It's one of the most clear pictures of self-idolatry. But there is a character in Willy Wonka called Veruca Salt. She is the bratty, spoiled child that wants the golden goose. And what does she say in her only way? It's all about her. She wants what she wants, and she wants it now. And if she doesn't get it, she is going to make everybody's life miserable around her until she gets what she wants. The idolatry of self and the idolatry of stuff. This is how the devil is attacking relationships. He is trying to get us to understand. He's shooting these flaming arrows that we see in chapter 6, verse 16. Because he knows that our sin and our selfishness will mess up and ruin the relationships that we have. Marriages, if you're in this room today and you are married, the devil wants to destroy your marriage. We see in scripture that there is a beautiful example of the gospel that is found in marriage. No wonder why the devil is hard after marriage. Parents and, and, and uh, kids, the devil is after your relationships. And so we need to go before the Lord and unite together, not living in isolation from one another, but coming together and serving one another and discipling one another so that we can fight the good fight of faith together. We can't do that if we're only popping in and out whenever it's convenient. And that's hard because life is busy. It's in that busyness that the devil will really, truly destroy. So the charge today, and as we leave and, and end the book of Ephesians, is as a church family to love and serve one another out of reverence for Christ. It's our faith in Jesus that transforms how we live. It's our faith becoming real. And, and I want to clarify that this is not a mask that we put on. 
It's not this happy mess that we put on, that we just act like we have it all together. We come together once a week or twice a week to just do certain things and act like, no, no, it's actually being transparent and real and vulnerable with one another. And it's out of an overflow of relationship that we have with God that we begin to pour into one another. And I think often the reason we don't do the whole serve one another, love one another thing is because we really truly don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And so we come to church on a Sunday morning so that we can get like fired up, but then walk out the doors and never pursue Jesus on a personal level. And I need you to know that I've had seasons of my life that that was true and it doesn't work. It doesn't. The, my marriage will not be what it is apart from the goodness of the gospel overflowing in and through our lives. Like, the way we live in our community with one another won't be what it's supposed to be unless we are, are receiving an overflow of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God into our lives so that it can overflow into the world around us. Often we are operating more on empty than we are on full. And we can't do it. We can't be this type of church. And so there's a couple of things, and, and this may seem hard or heavy, but, but it's, it's just the reality of where we find ourselves today. Because we are in a, a westernized church culture that is more about what we can get out of it than what we bring into it. And, and so here's what I have to say about, as a church family, love and serve one another out of reverence for Christ. Don't be the exception. Don't be someone that comes in and comes out and say, yeah, that's true, but we have a transient community here. We have people that move here for a season and they leave. Um, we have seasonal people that come in every so often in season. We love that you're here. Um, we have people that are, um, so we have either seasonal or we have shoppers in our, in our community, people that are just going around trying to find the right fit for them based off of music and style and clothing and, and different things like that. And all I want to say is, is don't not plug in because you think, well, it's not my season or it's not my time or I'm just going to be here for a short period of time. The church family is here to pour into you and you are here to pour into the church family. Don't be the exception. And the second thing is, don't think somebody else will step up. I think often we hear of needs and we go, oh, I'm sure there's somebody that'll do that. But don't be passive. Be active. That's why we hold membership at such a high value here at FMCC. And we even have opened up membership to those that are seasonal that will be coming back season after season. Why? Because we want to plug into the life of the church. And Tim and I, and Steve as an elder candidate, we know we will be held accountable, according to Hebrews 13, 17, for those that God has entrusted us with. But we need to know who God has entrusted us with. And so we have set up membership so we can look at the word of God together. And just because you've been here for two years doesn't mean that you're a member. We have a process of membership that we have laid out. Why? Because we want to be all on the same page, linking arms together so that we can be a launching pad for ministry into our community. So that's where we have a track for membership and deacons and elders. This is not a conveyor belt. Let me just be clear. Our hope is not that someone comes in and goes through all these steps. That's not it. We want people to plug into the life of the family because this is what God has intended. It's only in our modernized culture that it has become corporate and it has become like something that you do. 
But when, when you look in context of this, like they lived life together. They served together. They went around evangelizing together and they prayed together. They shared meals together. That's the type of church that we desire to be. So don't be the exception. Don't think someone else will step up. And I know that we are tired and busy. I want you to know everybody else is too. And there are about 20% of people in this room right now or that are in serving right now that are carrying the weight of this. And the weight becomes much lighter when everybody participates, when everybody jumps in, and when we as the people, as the members, take the initiative to plug in. And that's one of the things I love about this church because people are plugging in like crazy. And I'm not coming to you as someone who is like, yeah, but I do this you know, with, with my life and my, t-. like, I'm a member too. I have a job outside of here. And so I'm just, I just want to, you to know that like, I have to provide for my family outside of the context of working here at FMCC. I do this because this is what God has called me to. Tim does this because this is what God has called him to. Steve, who's here often more, t- more time than I am, like with this whole building project and all these things, like I walk in and he's here and then I leave and he's still here. Like these guys have jobs outside of here. Tim is a scientist. Steve is a financial advisor. I'm a residential real estate agent. We do this because God has called us to this because this is the family that God has called us to. But we can't bear this weight alone. We need the church family to come together, serve one another, love one another, and lift up each other's arms. Why? Because God is doing a work. If you look in this area, four to six percent of this given population around us will attend church on a given Sunday. Four to six percent. That means there's over 90 percent of people that won't step foot inside of a church. And you know who they are? Your neighbors your coworkers, your friends, your family. And what we don't necessarily need is for you to just bring them here. What our job is to equip and empower you to share the good news of Jesus, to share your story, your grace story, with every man, woman, child that you come in contact with. And as people's eyes are opened up to the beauty of the gospel, then this is a church family that they can plug into and serve with and love with and be cared for. The type of church that we want to be is the type of church that links arms together and sees this community transformed by the gospel. Do we believe that that can happen? I mean, I'm guessing if you were one of the disciples at the Last Supper, that you're looking around the room at 12, 13 people, maybe some other people that were there hanging out, going, this is who you chose to start this thing? There's what, 200 here? Imagine what God will do to a church who is fully submitted to him that is loving one another and serving one another with all that they have, with their whole heart for his glory. Let's be that type of church. I want to be that type of church. Do you want to be that type of church? Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I really do believe that you, in your sovereignty, brought our family a little over a year ago into this letter that was written to a young church so that we could be encouraged and challenged and lifted up and transformed 
to be the type of church that you want us to be. God, you are on a mission. Your mission is to seek and save the lost. And you have said in your word that you have invited, called us to go and make disciples. And so, Lord, I pray that we do not just merely take that passively, but that we would play an active part. God, I love in 1 Corinthians when when Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth where he says that the body has many, many members. And there are some that are an eye and some that are a hand and some that are a finger and some that are a toe. And we need each other. And often I believe, Lord, that we can come to a place like this and then slip out without ever plugging in. But God, that's not being a part of the body. And so I pray right now that your spirit would stir in our hearts in a way that we, as your church, would link arms together and say, I will be who you have called me to be, God, in the life of this family. And if it's the elbow, it's the elbow. If it's the shoulder, it's the shoulder. But whatever I need to be, Lord, I submit to you. And out of reverence for you, we will submit to one another. We will serve one another. We will honor one another. We will disciple each other's kids. We will clean up what needs to be cleaned up. We will go out into the community and share your good news. Why? Because there is a lost and dying and hurting world around us that has one hope, and that one hope is you, Lord. And so as we sing out praises to your name, as we end in prayer, Lord, I pray that we as your church would know what our role is, would jump in and pursue you as our greatest treasure. God, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Would you stand? Um, as we continue to worship in song.